Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Robert M. Price, the Bible geek. The word geek denotes an obsessed hobbyist, and uh, I'm happy to accept that definition. I find the Bible absorbingly fascinating. I do not regard it as an authoritative or inspired revelation from God. I used to, but ironically, it was the avid study of the Bible that led me to give up my religious devotion to it. I had to decide between my desire to understand the Bible and the religious faith that created my interest in it to begin with. So now I love the Bible as the classicist loves the Iliad and the Odyssey. In my view, there's nothing more pious than trying to understand the text for its own sake. Whether you are a believer or a skeptic, I'm inviting you to join me as we try to make sense of a sometimes puzzling book. Now, as I mentioned at the end of the last exciting episode of The Bible Geek, uh, I wanted to devote uh, today's episode uh, to uh, some interesting uh, questions and observations uh, by uh, David Mersch, who uh, is, who's written a fascinating book um, called uh, The Open Tomb. I appeared with him on uh, a podcast once um, discussing some of the issues, and he has sent me some interesting, challenging um, questions and such uh, about um, a couple of themes. The uh, the first is the early dating and authorship of the Synoptic Gospels. And there's a bunch of considerations here, and I want to read them and reply to them. Actually, he sent me this in an email, but I figured it would be uh, good to share the whole exchange with uh, the uh, the Bible Geek listenership. Uh, plus, it's a lot easier just to talk it out than to uh, compose a long essay about it. Okay, uh, number one, the Gospels were political propaganda. Although these works contain elements of history, biography, myth, fiction, and the like, they fail to fit precisely into any one category except one, political propaganda, which can embrace partially each of the listed categories. As such, and since political propaganda has a shelf life concurrent with the life of its protagonist or of a specific movement, the value of the Gospels as a means of distributing political ideas was most effective during the life of Jesus' ministry and for a short time after. 
The idea of writing these works decades later would be pointless if their writers were fully aware of their intended message. Well, uh, okay, end of that one, my response. Well, yeah, that is a big if. Uh, it's uh, not clear that uh, the ancients who passed these things on, much less those who wrote them down, did understand it to be primarily political or, or in the present form, political at all. Um, and uh, it seems to me that the stuff you well, you can make a, a pretty good case, which I've tried to make in print a few times, that uh, Jesus might, well, if there was a historical Jesus, he would very likely be uh, have been a, a kind of um, messianic would-be king. And various things like the, you know, the epithets of some of the disciples, uh, Simon the Zealot, and so on and so forth, uh, might uh, indicate that. And, and a couple of odd sayings, odd in their present context, like um, uh, let him who has has not got a sword sell his shirt to buy one, and um, oh, the uh, the kingdom of God comes, uh, advances with violence, and violent men seize it by force, and the fact that Jesus was crucified as a seditionist and, and so on. Um, yeah, these things would seem to point to, to that. But uh, uh, the, the problem is that they do stick out as like sore thumbs. They, they don't appear to be of the same general tenor as the rest of the Gospels. And because you've also got side-by-side accommodationism with Rome, like if anyone forces you to carry his his field pack uh, for a mile, why don't you take it um, uh, too? Or render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and so forth. Um, you've, You've got a real mixed bag, and it seems to me that the very argument as offered by Robert Eisler and S.G.F. Brandon and Hermann Samuel Reimarus uh, was not that the Gospels in their present form are revolutionary documents, but that they are, in fact, subsequent attempts to sanitize and uh, um, neuter uh, the original Christian uh, Jesus tradition, uh, so that it no longer appeared to be a revolutionary movement, and indeed was was no longer a, a revolutionary movement. And, and why did they do this? Well, because their uh, leader in the revolution, Che Jesus, had been crucified, uh, uh, inviting the uh, suspicious, uh, hostile scrutiny of the Romans. Well, these guys wanted to carry it on, uh, and uh, what they did was to um, uh, doctor and sanitize the tradition, uh, and inevitably, uh, you know what uh, Mark Goodacre calls editorial anxiety. Uh, they uh, they didn't um, uh, realize the implications of some of the things they left in. Uh, this may seem odd, but it's exactly what happened with the Jewish establishment of Pharisees, scribes, rabbis, whatever, after the uh, war with Rome, uh, when they were defeated. And uh, they they, they uh, were crushed by Rome, but they set up shop to the north in Yavna with a purely uh, religious 
authority in, in this new Sanhedrin. Well, you might have expected them just to get wiped out, but no, they they uh, recouped and uh, re- started it over again on an exclusively religious basis. Well, it seems to me that the Gospels are readily understood as an attempt to do that, to come up with a non-revolutionary Jesus movement, since that was, to continue, it would have been suicide, to continue it as it was. So I think the Gospels, as we now find them, uh, have left political propaganda in the rearview mirror. So I don't think that, uh, though there are traces of uh, militant propaganda in there. That's not what they're about anymore. And so this, uh, this connection that would, um, render them very early, close to, uh, Jesus activities, I, I think that, um, is, uh, illusory really. Okay, second one. Uh, many of the pericopes, you know, the you know self-contained units and parables are time-sensitive, or in other words, specifically tied to a specific historic event. For example, the Gadarene demoniac story is specifically tied to Antipas forcefully. Um, populating the new city of Tiberias with unwilling Jews sometime in uh, uh, in the early 20s CE. The story of the Samaritan woman at the well is tied to the Samaritan tumult of 36 CE, etc., etc., These stories, through allegory and metaphor, were a means of spreading Jesus' political message of revolution at a time when Rome occupied Israel. Imagine the Nazi occupation of France and the need for the French underground to relay messages except without the aid of radio. Well, once again, I see a problem with this. Okay, that's that's the end of what uh, Dave says. Uh, I see a problem with this in that uh, these um, interpretations of these particular gospel stories are possible, but uh, highly uh, dubious. Uh, that is debatable, right? Uh, uh, they're they're not impossible, but uh, the, the, there are other, at least equally um, enlightening uh, interpretations of these things. Uh, that the uh, the Gadarene demoniac story uh, might well have had uh, originally uh, revolutionary anti-Roman. Um, um, edges uh, to them but with this one like it seems to me like just as most people today don't read it that way they just read it as yet another Jesus miracle story where he beats the devils we don't know that that wasn't uh, the original intent and the, the way everybody uh, read it back then uh, it's uh, it's tough to say um so there might have been a political meaning, but it doesn't seem to be in the forefront anymore. Uh, the um, and the the thing with Tiberius uh, that's more specific than I've heard Crossan or others tie it uh, to uh, to the parable. Um, the uh, Samaritan woman it makes sense to me that that is simply 
um, um, if anything, a polemic in favor of the Samaritan mission. It ends saying the the wheat fields are ripe for harvest. Um, uh, so pray to the Lord of the harvest, the boss of the operation, to send forth more laborers uh, because you can harvest what others have planted here. That uh, I don't see why you need more than the um, the this same thing you see in the Simon Mega story in Acts that it's about adding Samaritan members to the to the churches. Uh, also, I think it's a pretty good um, um, possibility that it originated as a Docetheus story, as I've explained a couple of times, and that it was appropriated for uh, uh, for uh, Jesus. Uh, let's see. And um, oh, geez, what was the other thing I was going to say? Uh, um. Yeah, uh, that uh, as even Bultmann recognized, it's not unlikely that this is a borrowed Buddhist story where Ananda meets a lower caste woman at the well and requests a drink. And uh, just as John 4 says, well, there's a problem here because Jews and Samaritans don't use the same dishes in common. Uh, well, in the same way, uh, the, the woman at the well says to Ananda, I can't give you a drink out of my uh, bucket here because uh, I'm of a different caste. And it was the same thing. You know, it would be unclean ritually for you to um, drink from the same vessel uh, I'm drinking from. And then it's there's a different spin on it, but it, it may be that uh, that was the uh, the original point of it and that wasn't particularly political. Uh, so I, I'm, it seems to me that y- your argument is based on a dubious premise again, especially if you're admitting that they would, that to be political, they would have to be allegorical. Well, it, it's always dangerous to, um, to build anything on a possible interpretation underlying an allegory. We don't really know uh, for sure what they, they uh, an allegory is about. Okay, back to Dave. Uh, third, there is no mention of Paul or the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in these works. So clearly, it would seem that these works were composed before 70 CE, the destruction of the temple, and 50 CE, Paul. Paul even mentions them in 1 Corinthians as pre-existing his works. I'm not sure I get the second part of it, but uh, if there's no mention of Paul or the fall of Jerusalem, then it can't have happened yet. Uh, John A.T. Robinson argued that in his uh, book, uh, Redating the New Testament, at least with the temple. But I, I uh, don't see it that way. It seems to me, without regard to dating even, that um, Mark is mentioning uh, Paul, though, again, it's difficult to be sure because it's uh, it's... Well, not an allegory exactly, but uh, that it seems to me implicitly about Paul in the strange exorcist story, right? Where, um, uh, is it just John or James and John? I forget the, where he, he says they, 
say to Jesus, oh, I know you're going to be pleased at this, Lord. Uh, we saw some guy working our side of the street using your name um, as the incantation to cast out demons. But uh, we told him to cease and desist because he wasn't following us. And uh, Jesus, uh, typically, you know, they expect a pat on the head, but instead he gives them a kick in the teeth and says, oh, you did what? This guy is using my name to cast out demons and you think he's uh, our enemy? Uh, come on, we can. We, we need all the friends we can get. If he's not uh, working against us, he's for us. Well, it seems to me that uh, that has to be about, I could be wrong, right? But it seems to me the obvious um, um, connotation of this is that um, that Paul is the one represented by the strange exorcist. He's doing the work of Jesus in the name of Jesus, but he doesn't go with the twelve. You know, boy, I tell you that uh, that it's not as if we didn't know that was a big issue in the early church. Uh, same thing with. Um, the destruction of Jerusalem, I, I don't see how Robinson could say that it's not mentioned in the Gospels. Uh, isn't the point of the, uh, the, uh, the Olivet Discourse or the, the Little Apocalypse, whatever you want to call it, Mark 13, Matthew 24, Luke 17 and 21, um, and even uh, John 4, the Samaritan woman thing again, isn't the point of this that um, it, it won't be long before the temple is destroyed and, and one will have to, wor to worship God in spirit and in truth any place? I mean, if that is, I mean, like James Barr says in his great book, Fundamentalism, whenever in other apocalyptic literature you have a prediction, quote unquote, uh, that, uh, oh, look at this, it was fulfilled. That's uh, a direct tip-off that this was written after the event, not before it. Nobody has any trouble with that when you're dealing with the fourth Ezra or second Baruch or whatever. You say, oh, oh, I see. They're, they're looking back on this, but they're trying to say, oh, look, it didn't take God by surprise because he predicted it through a prophet or through Jesus. Uh, and why suddenly make the Gospels an exception to this rule? If you're going to interpret them like you do any other ancient literature, then you have to say, yeah, this, uh, uh, this was, uh, a, uh, what is it? A Vaticinium ex eventu, a prediction, quote unquote, after the fact. Uh, so it seems to me they got the destruction of Jerusalem written all over, uh, over them. Uh, for, there is a reference, you will be no friend of Caesar's uh, reference to Tiberius's decree of 32 CE to the officials of the empire to respect all local customs. In point of fact, Philo refers to Tiberius's non-interference attitude throughout his reign, which ended in 37 CE. It would be pointless to refer to this attitude decades later. 
Well, I'm not so sure it is a reference to that. It might be, but in the context, aren't they just trying to intimidate Caesar and say, hey, this guy claimed to be king of the Jews. Uh, you're going to let him go? Uh, that's If you were really a friend of Caesar's, uh, you wouldn't do that. Uh, and, uh, and indeed, that's the big problem with the whole idea that uh, every Passover they let some criminal, the, the people's choice, uh, off the hook. Would they really do that? Uh, well, there's no real evidence that they ever did. Uh, but uh, all you need is the idea is that you're going to let this false messiah off the hook here? Uh, you wouldn't do that if you were a loyal Roman. In fact, you know, somebody might even report this to Caesar. Well, okay, what the heck? Uh, crucify him yourselves. So I, I don't see any necessary um Connection there, there might be one, but it's pretty iffy, I think. Oh, let's see. Uh, five, there's a reference in these works regarding an earthquake and the rising of the saints from the earth at the time of Jesus, quote, death, unquote. There is geological evidence that an earthquake did occur with its epicenter near Ain Gedi, or however you say that, sometime between 27 and 37 CE. The inclusion of the saints rising easily could have been a misunderstanding of a natural event that is sometimes concurrent with an earthquake, namely sand blows or sand volcanoes that are geysers of sand or dirt that can pop up out of the ground and can reach several meters in height. Uh, well... Uh, you know, I, um, I tend to go along with a similar theory that, uh, uh it seems, I like uh, a version of what the Jehovah's Witnesses say about this. They, they're tending to, strangely enough, perhaps, uh, rationalize this Matthean miracle story, which has been added to Mark's passion narrative, not a good sign for historicity, um, that, uh, okay, there was an earthquake, uh, and um, that the tombs broke open, rocks split. Well, that can happen in an earthquake, right? <laughs> Not very surprising. Uh, and when it says that the dead emerged from their tombs and appeared to many in the city, apparently their loved ones who had buried them there, right? Um, th this was a big shocker. Uh, well, maybe all that happened was, like, you say, uh, that the bodies of buried uh, people were exposed because of the collapsing of the tombs and so on. Uh, and, uh, and so that they appeared to their loved ones because their relatives, etc., knew what might well have happened given the earthquake and went to see if their loved ones were still buried and found that they weren't. Uh, that originally the point may not have been Night of the Living Dead, where these corpses came back to life and went trick-or-treating in Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, the... Uh, uh, to me, that makes some sense, and that it's been sort of hyped up into a miracle uh, and uh, in Matthew. But that seems to me um, 
closer to the story and more likely. You, you can't just take things that are speculative possibilities and uh, make them uh, definite uh, you know, proofs of an early date. Uh, in fact, a, a striking freakish event may well be long remembered. Okay, six, uh, Dave says, Luke's introduction in his gospel refers to the most excellent Theophilus. Uh, scholars are unsure who exactly Theophilus was. However, by understanding who authored the synoptics, a conclusion can be made. It is of first importance to recognize that this may not be a personal name, but an attribution. Theophilus equaling linguistically, a friend of God. Um, um, it may also be a play on the name Philo. Philo as the friend of God from the Greek philos to love, loved, beloved, and also friend, a common suffix in personal names in ancient Greek. While at first glance it may seem as if Luke is writing to Theophilus, in actuality Philo is writing to himself, much as someone writing in their diary might write Dear Diary. They're not writing to the diary, they're writing to themselves. This was done, again, understanding the true nature of the Gospels, under Roman occupation because Philo was disguising his involvement in seditious works. Now, under that, the subordinate point A, Philo of Alexandria, or Philo Judaeus, whose dates are 20 BCE to about 50 CE, was a contemporary of Jesus and was so well versed in the Old Testament that later Jerome considered that he might have been a temple priest. Philo was also well versed in allegory and Greek mythic works, uh, two aspects that show themselves in the Gospels. Uh, B, in the Coptic tradition, Theophilus was considered to be a Jew of Alexandria. C, the English biblical scholar of the 18th century, John Wesley, wrote in his notes on the New Testament that Theophilus, as the ancients inform us, was a person of eminent quality at Alexandria. Wesley gives no insight as to who's... Uh, as to who these ancients were or how he came by his information, but the implication is the same. Um, Theophilus was considered, at least by some, to have come from Alexandria. D, the first two synoptics are Jewish works written in Greek with Latin titles, Mark, Marcus, Mars, Luke, Lucas, Lucifer, uh, Matthew is uncertain. Um, I'm not quite sure of the relevance of that one, but let's go on. E, the Stanford University School of Philosophy, after an in-depth study of Philo, determined that he was the only writer of antiquity to write in the same manner. Jewish works written in Greek with Latin titles. He also used allegory extensively, both in his own works and in deciphering the Old Testament. Uh, F. 
Two quick parallels. Philo on Joseph, paragraph 21. These things happened when Joseph was about 30 years of age. Luke, English Standard Version, 323. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Philo on Husbandry, paragraph 3. For Moses says, Every tree which bringeth not forth fruit good to eat, thou shalt cut down. Matthew, English Standard Version, 719. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down. Granted, the two parallels above can be seen as popular adages or references culturally, but their similarities are striking. Philo's On Husbandry has much to say allegorically about the use of the term shepherd, a term that is used over 20 times in the New Testament to denote leadership, as Philo explains in his work. Um, I have more research to do on this, but the above comments seem to me to be reasonably well connected to the dating and authorship of the synoptics. Well, Dave, are you saying that Philo might have been one of the gospel writers? It seems almost as if you're hovering around that, though I, probably I'm guessing if if I'm reading you right, you're you're just saying, well, no, that they must have been more or less contemporary works. Uh, they fit into this framework, but uh, to me, uh, that is not not only not conclusive, but not really suggestive. It seems to me it's a more obvious, likely choice to say what you do gives a possibility that this was just um, stuff that was on the minds of various people in the ancient world and in um, Hellenistic Judaism and so forth. I, I don't think, um, and it's for the Stanford University School of Philosophy, I, I, to me that really is almost irrelevant. Um, you know, how, how do they reach this conclusion? Uh, we really need to know that. And, uh, it, it seems to me that though the idea of Theophilus meaning something other than an individual's name, uh, that is a very old one. It's, uh, they say it means friend of God. So do you qualify? If so, this is written to you. Eh, that's possible. But uh, it it seems to me more likely that uh, the Gospels are written in the second century and that Theophilus is Theophilus of Antioch um, and uh, a fellow bishop, a friend of uh, Polycarp, who I think wrote Luke in its present form. Uh, so I, I don't find this really convincing and... Um, and so I'm afraid I don't buy that, but let me commend you for your your uh, alertness to, to parallels and similarities and the uh, impressive amount of research that you've put into this already. As some of you may know, I uh, did the crazy thing a few months back of awarding Ph.D. degrees 
from my Institute of Higher Critical Studies uh, to about 10 people whose research and scholarship strike me as the equivalent of a doctoral dissertation. I have been on doctoral dissertation committees before, so I have some idea of what's involved and what's quality stuff and what isn't. And I thought these people are outside the, the uh, institutional mainstream as I am too. Uh, and, uh, but I think they deserve somebody's recognition. So I sent them diplomas, uh, and Dave was one of those. And, uh, I would do it again. I don't happen to agree here, but, uh, that, uh, nonetheless, I mean, that doesn't mean anything. You've, you know, in scholarship, you encourage people to follow various projects of research, to develop various hypotheses, which is what he's done. I commend him. Now, here's another one from Dave I decided to deal with today that uh, uh, deals with a, a point he makes at great uh, length in, in his book, The Open Tomb. So let me deal with that one, too. Having just watched your interview with Jacob Berman on his History Valley blog, uh, I'm frequently on that show. Uh, I couldn't help but notice that toward the end of the interview when someone super chatted the question, did Jesus die on the cross or did he live? Part of your response included the swoon theory. Uh, your quote in regards to the swoon theory was not a far-fetched theory. Uh, you then attributed the belief in that theory largely to Muslims. However, there are proponents of that theory within our own culture and scholarship, two of whom are Hugh Schoenfield with his work The Passover Plot and my own work The Open Tomb, Why and How Jesus Faked His Death and Resurrection. Uh, my point is, let me just pause there. Um, Hugh Schoenfield didn't actually advocate this, but it's just a hair's breadth difference. He he said Jesus and his co-conspirators were trying to fake his death, that he would uh, that he was drugged on the cross so that he would be taken down early. Usually, it would take days to to kill you by crucifixion, but he wanted to um, seem to have, he wanted to seem to have died, and then he would return, and uh, and, and he wasn't trying to trick anybody, he was just uh, sort of a rationalist uh, saying, now, prophecy demands that I, as the suffering servant, must give up my life as an atonement but that then I will be raised up and, and recognized as, as innocent after all. Now, how am I going to see to it that this happens? It's like if you couldn't figure out a way to do it, you wouldn't be the Messiah. But he, he didn't seem to think it would involve an actual miracle, just doing these performances, you might say, uh, on the stage. And, and he said that didn't work, though, because uh, one of the, the Romans at the crucifixion site harpooned him in the side, right? And water and blood came out. Oh, my God, a monkey wrench in the works. And so he did die. 
but his disciples thought he had risen because they kept running into white robed guys that uh, came to tell them uh, that uh, I mean fellow disciples that they didn't know like an inner circle of Essenes and uh, that they had gone out to meet the disciples wherever they could find them to tell them what had really happened. But the the uh, familiar disciples we know of uh, didn't get it. And they, in their great longing and for Jesus and missing him, they somehow thought, uh, you know, that guy that showed up, he must have been Jesus. He must have risen from the dead. And that's why he looked a bit different. I only realized subsequently that that had been Jesus, but it must have been him. Well, so that isn't the, uh, the swoon theory exactly, but it does sort of entail it. You probably know that anyway, but in case anybody listening doesn't. Okay. Um, okay. Back to Dave. Uh, my point is this, if you find that the swoon theory is not a, quote, far-fetched, unquote, theory, why don't you promote it more than, say, mythicism, docetism, etc.? Well, there's a, uh, this is me again, not Dave. Uh, to say that it's not far-fetched doesn't mean it's the most probable Right. It seems to me that there are other reasons for preferring the whole mythicist paradigm. Uh, but that, again, you know, there are different possibilities. And at this late in the game, it's hard to uh, know which really happened. But because of the various, the fact that, like, there's no real biographical uh, data in the Gospels. Uh, it, it, there could have been a Jesus, but if so, he's vanished behind the stained glass curtain, or, or apparently he's just like one of these totally mythical heroes, since that's the only kind of thing that's ever, quote, reported about him. Uh, and the fact that virtually all the Jesus stories in the Gospels are very plausibly, strikingly reminiscent of Old Testament stories and, and some material from Homer and others, and that the, that's all you've got, like, would no historical, biographical information have survived if Jesus had been a real figure? Uh, I mean, like uh, Caesar Augustus and Cyrus of Persia and others, uh, they their uh, stories began to be embroidered with the same sort of mythological uh, details and so on. But there's plenty of evidence tying them into the history of their times inextricably, whereas with Jesus, uh, there ain't none. So um, anyway... Um, Okay, let's go back to Dave. He says, the swoon theory has the advantage of being strictly human agency without the need for any supernatural intervention. This alone should place it above other theories for historians, since any theory devoid of the supernatural must, by historical research methods, be more probable than the supernatural. I, I agree with you there, yeah. But mythicism doesn't entail supernaturalism either. 
Anyway, and it should be placed above mythicism as the most likely explanation for Jesus' celebrity, because again, it is more probable than the magical mystery tour that is mythicism and its concept of a purely celestial and mythic Jesus. Well, of course, you you realize that, that I think you're granting this in what you're saying, that mythicism doesn't involve supernaturalism except fictively, right? It's a, it's a story of supernatural miracles and therefore mythical, at least to that degree. Okay, back to Dave. Since there are often legitimate reports of real people who have been declared dead, uh, who have come back to life shortly after, it is certainly conceivable that such was the case for Jesus. And I'm talking about modern reports of hospitalized people, often on monitors for EKGs and EEGs, who were pronounced dead but came back to life. Uh, the assumption that Roman crucifixion was a hundred percent effective in killing its victims is pure nonsense and presumes that a first century Roman soldiers, soldier was more adept at determining the death of a crucifixion victim than a modern MD with all, uh, their monitors at hand, uh, uh, is at determining the death of their patient. This is an argument that simply has to cease. Um, well, um, if you put it that way, yeah, yeah, we, we can't possibly know that they were accurate in their judgment in every case, yeah. Okay, the swoon theory should no longer be relegated to a fringe theory. Yep, I agree. It should, in fact, be considered the primary theory as to what happened to Jesus after the cross. Uh, while it might be fun and intellectually stimulating to consider other possible explanations for Jesus' post-crucifixion sightings, the swoon theory is the only historically reasonable explanation. His survival from the cross easily explains the myriad and diverse belief systems that sprang from that event. People needed to understand how it was possible for Jesus to be seen alive after he was declared dead. Consequently, they developed different scenarios to explain it. I think that it is high time we change the focus of our research into the historical Jesus and understood the swoon theory as the most probable explanation for his historical impact on the people of his day and on Western culture in general. Well, uh, I, thanks, Dave, and that's the end of his uh, missive. Uh, I... Uh, don't think you can eliminate all the competition uh, that uh, that simply. Uh, for instance, it's um, it's uh, again with with myth, the gospel Easter stories do not read like anybody's actual testimony. Uh, they they uh, incorporate various Old Testament motifs, like Matthew rewrites a lot of stuff from Daniel there, and and the others are scarcely stories at all. And one can explain the differences between them as editorial rewrites. Uh, and uh, it, it, so it seems to me you're, you're dealing with fiction there, especially since. 
Mark ends with an empty tomb and a failed promise of the disciples meeting Jesus since they don't ever hear of the invitation for the other gospels to go on and give uh, accounts of this post-resurrection meetings. It, it seems to me, if that's possible, only if you reject Mark's ending, uh, then that alone says they're historically worthless. Uh, and so the, um, so that, that really doesn't come into, that, that isn't even entered on the scale, in, in my opinion, of evidence. If you want to, plus, uh, as you probably know, I, don't even think the uh, list of resurrection appearances in in First uh, Corinthians 15 is originally part of that text. Uh, Marcion apparently didn't have it, and uh, and so that you've got an interpolation there. And uh, so what? Uh, or suppose in general we we did know for sure that certain followers of Jesus, assuming he was a historical person. Uh, had claimed to have seen him afterward. Is it that tough to imagine they were hallucinations? Uh, it's, uh, I mean, they're, uh, you know, presumably they really miss Jesus. And uh, it's not uh, that, I mean, after my father died, I had several vivid dreams of seeing him alive again. And in the dream, I thought, how can this be? He, he's dead. I know he's dead, but that is surely him. Uh, what the heck? I, I mean, if, if I, I knew they were dreams, but not everybody is so lucky. And uh, I just don't think, so there, you know, it's entirely plausible that there was a Jesus who died and his disciples, some of them, whoever, had visions of him. Uh, or, here's another interesting possibility, that someone along the line has misconstrued what it meant for disciples of Jesus uh, to see, quote, him afterward, uh, because uh, of all the stuff in the Gospels about he who hears you hears me. Uh, and uh, is that possible that the the wandering brethren of the Son of Man, uh, the charismatic itinerants, were were the mouthpieces for the ascended Jesus? And so that uh, they, if you're listening to me, you're uh, listening to Jesus. It's don't you don't think they can laugh it off. No, and in fact, I think Gerd Tyson was probably right that the famous statement where he says, whoever in this adulterous and, gener and, and uh, wicked generation um, uh, is ashamed of me and my words, that would be the charismatic itinerant apostle talking, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes, etc., uh, that's, uh, I and he are, are different subjects, right? But they're connected in that he is speaking to you through me. Well, somebody along the line misconstrued encounters with the post-Jesus, Jesus channelers or repeaters of Jesus proclamation and thought they were actually talking to Jesus like Peter and Quo Vadis. 
Uh, and uh, so there are a number of not far-fetched theories about this. Uh, but, the, you know, I'm very open to the swoon theory, sure. But I don't think that you can really vindicate it by process of elimination with uh, the other ones. Nonetheless, keep up the good work, Dave. Uh, this is kind of dialogue is fascinating. You know, this is just the kind of thing I have advocated for years um, after the failure of the Jesus Project, uh, uh, that which uh, was evanescent, uh, ephemeral. It, it got so goofed up. Uh, administratively, the, there was never another meaning of it. Well, I thought if we want to be, uh, if we really want to explore the far reaches of, of these topics, we should have uh, a, a, another Jesus seminar type thing with radical Jesus theorists uh, that would uh, explore the material taking these various perspectives seriously the swoon theory mythicism the hallucination theory and all that because they're all just laughed off by the mainstream and, and with uh with no good reason so I, I would just love to see that uh and similarly uh paul's seminar uh based on radical theories of interpolation and uh pseudonymity and so on so if anybody out there is wealthy and feels like being a benefactor of the higher criticism, uh, I would urge you to, uh, uh, to seriously consider not sending me money, but founding some kind of a scholarly think tank along these lines and whoever is involved with it. So, uh, and, and Dave would be an ideal candidate for that. Yeah. Oh, let's see. I wonder what else I can squeeze in here. Yeah, let's do another couple of them. This was sort of the Dave Mersh geek today, but let's put some other stuff in here. Okay, uh, Randy says regarding Cain and Abel, do you think? In an earlier version of Cain's murder of Abel, it was actually a human sacrifice. God rejects Cain's sacrifice since it wasn't what Cain loved most and accepts Abel since it was the most beloved of his stock. Cain then realized Abel was his most loved thing and sacrifices him to gain God's favor. God's rejection of Cain for murder is propaganda against human sacrifices and that animal sacrifices are now okay instead. Of course, that's one of the ways of reading the story of the Akeda Isaac, Abraham's uh, near sacrifice of Isaac. And uh, it makes a lot of sense there. This would make sense. Interesting. Following up, is circumcision a replacement for human or child sacrifice? Uh, yeah, I think it is. In fact, uh, an earlier version of the sacrifice of the firstborn livestock uh, in the Pentateuch says that... Uh, uh, that uh, 
the firstborn of your cattle will be sacrificed on the eighth day. Uh, and, and this, this is like giving God his due, the pick of the litter, you might say, the first fruits. Uh, and, and because you were willing to do that, he will make sure your other cattle bear plenty of, of, uh, uh calves and, and so forth. Or if you give the first fruits of your, uh, field, your crop, uh, he'll see to it that you have an abundant harvest, right? Well, uh, it, it's specified in, uh, in this early version that, um, this holds true for your firstborn son. Uh, eight days it lives, but you offer him too, uh, the firstborn son from any wife you happen to have. Uh, and, uh, so Abraham is, is supposed to be doing that originally. It's not like uh, the the version of it Kierkegaard was using that uh, this was an exceptional thing. They already had in place the thou shalt not kill law, but that uh, should Abraham have stuck by that and and uh, and uh, dismissed God's summons for him to kill Isaac as some kind of hallucination. Well, I, I thought I heard the voice of God, but he'd never say this. Uh, should he have done that, or, or did he dare elevate the command of God to an individual above the general command of God to, to Israel? A fascinating discussion in uh, Kierkegaard, but uh, it may be that originally the point was Abe was just doing what all dads did, though he was reluctant to do it because he, you know, this is a child of his extreme old age. What are the likelihoods that he's going to have another one and so forth? And then, but at the last minute, he's told not only not to sacrifice him, but to sacrifice a ram instead. Well, that's, that's another version of an old Hercules story. Um, but I won't take the time to narrate yet again. Uh, and, uh, the, the point of it seems to be, hey, everybody take a note from what God did with Abraham. Yeah, there was this commandment to sacrifice your firstborn on the eighth day, but you don't have to do that anymore. And sure enough, the Pentateuch also contains a, another version of the same law that says, however, your firstborn son may be or must be redeemed by an animal being sacrificed in his place. Aha! You see, that's generalizing what uh, happened in the Abraham and Isaac story. Uh, so um, animal sacrifice place, replaces infant sacrifice. But then there's another one, because apparently, you know, they the same developments didn't occur all over the place at the same time. Uh, the one where, the very strange one, where God has told Moses to go back into Egypt and demand the freedom of his people from Pharaoh and all that, and yet... While he's still on the way to Egypt, God jumps out of the bushes and tries to kill him. What? What is going on there? Uh, well, uh, what happens? How is it resolved? Uh, Zipporah, his, his wife, somehow, I mean, I can't even envision this happening. Uh, 
uh, she intervenes and and uh, circumcises uh, Gershom, their infant son, grabs the foreskin and and touches it to Moses' penis. Is Moses naked? What is going on here? Uh, and she says to him, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And God said, okay, good enough. See you later. Uh, what happened there? Well, this has to be a ceremonial legend that is, that is trying to replace uh, bridegroom circumcision, which is still done in various parts of the world, uh, as a puberty rite. You've now reached maturity. You're now uh, capable of being married off. Uh, so you're you're not a child anymore. You're not an adolescent anymore. And, and so we got to circumcise you now. Uh, yeah, because uh, now you can really get some use out of you. Uh, well, uh, but the point is, uh, obviously, uh, like little kids can't protest that, right? If they're circumcised, but uh, adult, young adults can't. Hold on a second here. Uh, wouldn't it be better if we uh, circumcised babies? Yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. Uh, and... Um, and maybe this was a transitional form of it. Who knows? Uh, but, uh, yeah, there, this is a similar one that is replacing uh, young adult circumcision with infant circumcision. Uh, the, uh, the Abraham and Isaac one replaces infant sacrifice with animal sacrifice of the firstborn. But it's it's important to juggle both of those because they're the, each sort of interprets the other. You can see uh, from either one what sort of a story this is, and then you can recognize the same kind of thing going on in the other one. Uh, now, what you're saying about Cain and Abel, that might be a third one, uh, but could it doesn't quite read that way now. But on the other hand, the way it does read now is not that clear, right? Doesn't explain why uh, Cain's sacrifice was uh, unacceptable to God. Well, of course, to me it's simple because God would have the same good taste I do. I don't eat vegetables. Disgusting. Uh, and God naturally must agree with me. Hallelujah. You know, I said it. God believes it. That settles it. Uh, but uh, it doesn't actually say. It doesn't say uh, Cain was a hypocrite or he was insincere or something like that. It doesn't. In, in, uh, it's just that he was bummed out. Hey, what, God? What am I, chopped liver here? Uh, God uh, is, why does he reject mine? It's like the Smothers Brothers. You know, you are always God's favorite. Uh, so it's it's not clear in the original what the heck is happening. So you're filling it in in a novel way that could well be the case. All right. So uh, thanks, Randy. Good stuff. Um, here is one from uh, Frank Frost in Kirkland, Washington. I'm not sure if this is his. Well, whoever, here's a goodie. I heard you talking on an old Bible Geek podcast about Job, and you commented that you would love to see a movie made about Job. 
that spark of memory. When I was a kid, uh, we lived in Middlesboro, Kentucky, in the early 60s, and one time we went to see a stage production called The Book of Job in a natural amphitheater out in the woods somewhere near Pineville, Kentucky. I don't remember much about it, as at the age of seven or eight, I wasn't a biblical scholar. Just remember that it was kind of spooky. It was after dark, and there were no lights except those on the stage, with the crickets singing, the colored spotlights on the actors dressed in robes, and a disembodied voice of someone. I presume it was God. Uh, It was not for the faint-hearted. The impression I got was that it was a traveling troupe who put it on in various places throughout the Bible Belt. Have you ever heard of this or ever seen it in your travels in the South? Uh, no, I, I'm sorry to say I haven't. I'd love to see that. Uh, I can imagine it was quite a hit with the poor people in Southern Appalachia who could sympathize with all the trials and tribulations that Job went through. Sort of an object lesson. In really tough times, if you remain faithful to God, you, like Job, will survive. This was before the Johnson Welfare State came into being, and poor men who couldn't find a job could get some relief from the county by working on the roads and other public works. Um, They were called the Happy Pappies. Remember them? Nope. Uh, I... uh, I don't recall that. I mean, I I have sort of second-hand memories. My uh, mother, uh, when she was a girl, uh, picked cotton in the fields, uh, and uh, I guess that's sort of analogous. But no, I've never heard of that or of the uh, the Job thing. I, I'd love to see that. I wonder if there's a recording of it somewhere. Uh, uh, there was this modern play, J.B., which I gather was a ghetto version of it or something. Uh, if, I don't know if anybody out there watches The Rifleman, uh, the syndicated reruns. Uh, I love that show, and it is great for morally educating your kids, by the way. Uh, and uh, in the uh, very first episode, no, it's the second one, uh, where uh, Lucas McCain and his son, uh, Mark, have uh, just moved into a farm spread they bought. And as they're unloading their meager belongings from their wagon, a couple of uh, cow pokes come up and say, you know, I hate to tell you this, but uh, you're going to have to move because our boss, who's this big cattle baron, uh, he uses these pastures for grazing his livestock. Uh, he always did under the previous owner. It was sort of an absentee. Um, and, and he's going to keep doing it now, so you, you'd better move along. And Lucas, of course, is not going to be pushed out. Uh, but they set the house on fire uh, and, uh, and beat him up mercilessly. And then he has to... Uh, try to do something about it. It's clever what he winds up doing. But uh, his son, Mark, is really broken up by this. I'd say he's like 10 years old. And uh, he says, I guess the Lord just doesn't want us to have this place. And uh, as he's um, getting ready to go 
see this cattle baron, Lucas says, let me tell you a story from the Bible. And he tells the story of Job uh, in a folkish kind of a way. And it is uh, really brilliant. And the script was written by Sam Peckinpah. And he really had a gift for this. And I, I, I love hearing that every time that one comes on. I frequently watch the, the reruns. And uh, if you ever get a chance to hear Lucas McCain or Sam Peckinpah's version of Job, uh, it's really a delight. Um, there's a whole lot more to Job. And oh, what I, boy, would I love to see that on as a movie. Okay, uh, now this is definitely from Frank Frost. Yeah, he's got. I don't know who the Kentuckian was who uh, just uh, quoted, uh, but thanks, that's a goodie. Okay, but Frank Frost from Washington says, on a recent episode, you mentioned Elijah originally being a sun god. Given the narrative in the Bible, I'm inclined to agree. My question is, is there any archaeological evidence for this? For example, evidence of uh, Asherah being Yahweh's consort uh, is demonstrated by the Kuntelet Ajrud inscriptions. Yeah, I didn't know the name, but I, I heard of that. Yeah, it's, it's got two enthroned figures, and it's, it, the caption is Yahweh and his Asherah. Uh, yeah, I don't think there is. At least I don't remember ever hearing of it. But it just seems to me that, I mean, you know, all that evidence is fragmentary. You know, who knows what you're going to discover next. But I think it's inevitable reading the Elijah stories and the Samson stories, especially, and a few others, but especially those two, as being about the personified son. Uh, S-U-N, uh, I think that uh, this just you know, just can't be coincidence, all these solar associations with, uh, with both of them. Uh, Elijah calling down fire on the bad guys, uh, him being a hairy man, uh, just like with Samson, the, the hair is the, really the rays of the sun, the, the Elijah's ascent into the heavens on the fiery chariot and so on and so forth. There's no way. Yeah. Okay. Um. Oh, let's see. I guess I will read one more here. This is from D.F. Strauss. I wonder if it's the same one whose book I like so much. Uh, hmm, let's see. Uh, he's a German, so... Please comment on this speculation connecting Jesus' burial in a tomb with some Bible-time people reinterpreting him as a Hellenistic God-man. I'm not saying I believe this, uh, just that it's an interesting idea. Very interesting. Um, I know you wonder whether Joseph of Arimathea is fictive, put in to fulfill a prophecy in Isaiah. Could it be that buried in a tomb is also a plot device? I guess that cutting a tomb out of rock would be expensive. I wonder whether 
Away back in Bible times, poor folks could afford that. And whether Jesus would really have been buried in a grave, Google has not helped me answer this. I noticed that uh, for a resurrection story, buried in the ground doesn't work so well. Witnesses can't conveniently find a buried-in-the-ground grave empty. And without an empty burial place, after-death appearances may be just suggest mistaken identity or he didn't really die. Having Jesus buried in a tomb that can then be found empty makes the story work much better. When my lithium levels get low, seeing that the tomb was maybe just a plot device flips on the switch for seeing that all the death stuff is fictive. Now the resurrection stories are not accounts of real events. Instead, a legend arose, and later on, gospel writers filled in the details. Having the death stories made up from whole cloth matches how Matthew and Luke added details about Jesus' birth that fit ancient expectations about divine God-man. Genealogies, miraculous birth, dream portents, prophecy-fulfilling travel, the star leading the three magpies from the east, named Franklin, Vince, and Merv, or I don't know my Bible. And if the birth stuff at the beginning and the died and rose stuff at the end are both made up, and in a way that would have led ancient people to see Jesus as a God-man, it makes me wonder whether there was some early Jesus real or mythulous, with his own early story, who became locally popular and whose story in spreading outside Galilee and Judea got Hellenized. I guess this would make our Jesus something like Santa Claus. There probably really was a Saint Nick, but nothing in our story of Santa comes from him. Oh, and by the way, if you're tidying up a legend about a God-man who dies and comes back to life, crucifixion would be a good plot element to include. It leaves your guy not just dead, but good and dead. For sure dead. An improvement on divine folks who just disappeared, like Apollonius of Tyana. and that guy in Herodotus, whose name I forget. For Mark, whose short ending does have Jesus basically disappear, finding a tomb empty is absolutely essential. Jesus couldn't be found to disappear from a Tafos grave. I can't think of what that means. And crucifixion shows him in overcoming the most horrible execution method the Romans had to be particularly powerful. Thank you, David Friedrich. Yeah, that is interesting. And, and what you've said really 
jibes with uh, with uh, what Charles H. Talbert uh, said in his great book, um, What is a Gospel, uh, where he says, you just cannot miss what you know about this, the similarity between the uh, the empty tomb story uh, and uh, apotheosis narratives, or, you know, uh, or you could shorten it to theosis, uh, a man becoming deified, becoming God. And there are various uh, ones of those. And uh, even in the Bible, right, uh, uh, Elijah disappears into the sky, right, in that chariot. Uh, and uh, he doesn't exactly even die, but he departs from the earth. And uh, e- Elisha, his disciples, sees it. But the other sons of the prophets, they don't see it, and they show up late and say, hey, where's Elijah the prophet? Uh, and uh, and he, Elisha tells them what happened, and they say, do you mind if we take our make our own investigation? <laughs> Go ahead if you don't believe me. And so they do. They scour the countryside. And they say, maybe, I mean, there was some kind of whirlwind. We know that. Maybe he was just picked up by it and thrown away at a distance and to, to his death. Now, that kind of thing happens, right? That's not impossible. But they can't find the body. And they say, oh, okay, you were right the first time. He's been taken up. Uh, and there there are other ones like that where they, um, uh, stories where they, uh, they're just gone, but a heavenly, like Apollonius of Tyana, he disappears inside a locked temple, and then somebody hears the heavenly chorus saying, go up from earth, go up from earth, and they uh, they open up the temple and search for him, but uh, he ain't there. And, well, okay, he must have gone to heaven to be with the gods. And there are other ones like that, too. Can't find a stitch of clothing or a piece of his armor or a bone or a fingernail. He must have gone up. Uh, and uh, so uh, that and Talbert said any ancient reader of Mark who was half educated would not have needed a resurrection appearance. Uh, he would understand like Mark would not seem to end prematurely. For such a reader, that's oh, he, they go to his tomb. It's open, and he's not there. And a, a, a figure, possibly an angel, says, "Oh no, he's he's risen." Uh, well, okay, I guess he's been deified. Uh, there is, I admit, a uh, the uh, an implied continuation, right? Tell his disciples and Peter to go meet him in Galilee. Well, it's possible, uh, Billy Markson and others have said this, that uh, what that means is you will see him at his second coming, which is going to be about, a, you know, a day and a half from now, so get your butts up there. Uh, that'll be a reunion with him. That's not impossible. Uh, and uh, But we don't know in Mark because the, the women who were told to convey this message uh, don't. The two freaked out. Uh, and uh, so he may well be right. Uh, and uh, in which case you, uh, you just don't have any resurrection appearances. You wouldn't really need them. Uh, 
Though, of course, some such legends did have them. I mean, that that would have been uh, familiar to uh, to readers, too. Of the other Gospels. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, the, the empty tomb thing, that may... I mean, it does seem to be a legend. And um, I, I think it's very significant that uh, Bart Ehrman used to say, well, the story leading up to the, uh, the resurrection appearances, that much of it is is basically true, that, uh, yeah, there was a, a, his tomb was found to be empty, and when the women went to, to anoint the body, but that doesn't mean that the explanation, the best explanation for his absence was that he had come back to life, etc., well, uh, now, from what I read, Bart has said, you know, I think I was a little hasty there. I don't see why the empty tomb itself should not be considered fictional, which is just what you're suggesting. And uh, I, I think that's probably right. And uh, what you, this was an instance where Bart, who, like me, it was an ex-evangelical and kind of an apologist, uh, he, he had just taken for granted that the old rationalist argument, well, now we know the story is true up until the one controversial element of the resurrection. Now, can you unbelieving rationalists out there come up with any naturalistic explanation for that? I bet you can't. And they'll say, oh, you think they went to the wrong tomb? Nope. That can have happened because of this. You'd think the body was stolen. Nope, uh, because if they, if the Sanhedrin stole it, they would have produced the body to debunk the early preaching of the resurrection. So that can't be right. I'm afraid you're stuck having to admit that he did rise from the dead. Well, Bart didn't believe that anymore, but uh, I think he, 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 uh, did accept the logic of it up to that point, that uh, it's just a question of how you explain the empty tomb. Oh, no! Uh, the uh, I like the cartoonists, I don't know their names, who um, did this Jesus and Mo cartoon where um, uh, Jesus is saying uh, uh, that, uh, look, you, you can't deny the resurrection because, uh, you know, what about the empty tomb? And uh, Muhammad, uh, <laughs> can't get into why he names him that and so on, but he says, you, you can't prove one part of a story from another part of the same story. It's like arguing that there must be an Emerald City of Oz, because otherwise, where does the yellow brick road lead? I got news for you, Bow. There wasn't one of those either. And uh, so uh, you're you're making a very good point, and you're in good company among those who made it. Uh, so that's uh, great. Let's see here. Well, here's one from Carl. Um. First, I want to thank you for your writings, especially the pre-Nicene New Testament, of which I have purchased three copies over time. Boy, I ought to be on easy street because of that. Anyway, uh, the Marcion portion led me to believe that for the typical Gentile Christian, only the non-pastoral Pauline epistles are applicable. 
Um, non-pastoral, of course, you know, the pastoral epistles are Titus, First and Second Timothy. Okay. Uh, Marcion didn't have those because they hadn't been written yet. Uh, uh, for me, this eliminates most of the conflicts inherent in the New Testament. That said, there remains a glaring pair of contradicting threads woven within those Pauline epistles. In short, on the one hand, there is the all things are lawful unto me. Uh, there is no sin since we're not under the law. On the other hand, Paul repeatedly recites a list of behaviors, largely sexual behaviors, that will exclude one from eternal life. Uh, my question to you, how do you recognize, uh, reconcile these two things? Uh, let's see. Most of the problem is uh, solved by the fact that um, in the all things are lawful uh, statement is applied to things that uh, at least the case the, the case that brings it up is where he is talking about should Christians eat steaks offered to idols um, which ordinarily would be eaten by the priests that was their their sustenance uh, and, uh, and, and, but, but so many were offered that, uh, they, what were they gonna do with the, the meat they couldn't <laughs> finish off in time? They didn't have refrigerators to preserve them. Uh, so they would, uh, they would sell the, the leftover meat in the meat markets. And, uh, and then that, since they, uh, gave them a good deal, you could get good, stakes there for not very much money. Well, the situation in Corinth is that uh, naturally Christians are going to be invited uh, for uh, dinner by non-Christian friends, uh, maybe business dinners, who knows. Uh, well, what are you going to do if the, if the meat they're offering came from a meat market that bought it from the priests of a pagan god and had offered it ceremonially to Apollo or Mithras or something? Uh, and and the, the issue is that some in Corinth, the Gnostics, said, look, that doesn't make any difference. It's, it's just an all-you-can-eat buffet, right? Who cares where it came from? As long as it's not poisoned, right, or past the date. Uh, and uh, he, Paul says, uh, yeah, in fact, they're right. It, it doesn't really matter, but... If your host says, hey, how about these steaks? I got them from the meat market cheap because they came from the Temple of Apollo. Oh, no, I wish I hadn't said that. Uh, because sure as heck, some idiot from my church is going to hear that I ate a steak offered to a pagan god, and he's going to think, oh, you mean we don't have to just stick with Christianity? We can be a member of a bunch of different religions, like several people were at the time, right? Uh, well, okay, don't mind if I do. I may start going to uh, the Apollo Temple, the Mithras Temple, and all that, too. What the heck? Um, and, and no, no, you, you don't want to do that. For us, there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, it says in the same epistle. Um, but, uh, so he says, and, and this is the context in which he says, uh, we all have knowledge, but knowledge puffs up 
while love builds up. And he says that uh, all things are lawful for me because of my elite knowledge. I understand what what's what works and what doesn't. But not all things are expedient. You may have the right to do it. Uh, inherently, there's nothing wrong with the contemplated action, but there may yet be circumstances that make it unwise to do. Uh, and that's a very helpful thing to remember. All things are lawful, but there's some, sometimes a good reason not to do something. And, and in this case, he's saying you don't want to inadvertently mislead somebody who doesn't understand things as well as you do. Uh, and uh, so would he think that, but in the same letter, if this is all by the same guy, I mean, that's a big assumption right there. Uh, it, he says, hey, flee prostitution, pornea. Uh, he says, he talks, to, apparently there were Gnostic Christians there who said, well, and Paul even quotes a slogan, uh, as if somebody is saying, well, what the heck? It's the, 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 uh, foods for the stomach and the stomach is for food. Uh, what, what's the big deal? And, and it's the same way with sex. You know, it's, uh, sex is for the body and the body is designed for sex. How can it be wrong? What the heck? We understand. And Paul says, well, no, you don't. Uh, the body is for the Lord. Uh, you don't have any right to take your body, which now belongs to Christ, and make it one with some whore. Because that's what you're doing. You're dragging Jesus along to the brothel. Uh, and uh, so maybe you don't understand things as well as you might. So uh, certain, but you see what he's arguing. He doesn't just say, hey, look, it says thou shalt not, so thou shalt not. No, he says, uh, no, you see, there's a problem with this, a problem you don't grasp. Uh, so uh, it, it's a flexible and nuanced view, but in a way, it's it's like uh, the snowflake thing today, right? Oh, that's a microaggression. You know, you, you could be offending somebody by this, so you better not do it. Uh, well, well, Jesus didn't seem to take that approach in the Gospels, right? You're offended too damn bad. Uh, and so, you know, you got to weigh all these things. But I, but he, uh, Paul is depicted as drawing some lines, though he has arguments for him. Uh, this might be a good example, I don't know, or an exception that proves the rule. He's dealing also with whether uh, women in the congregation can prophesy and pray in, in the public assembly. Uh, and uh, he says, well, ideally, uh, no, um, uh, and and why? Well, uh, God uh, made um, man in his image to reflect his glory. But you see, he made woman in the man's image uh, to, uh, to uh, reflect his glory. And that's why a woman has to wear a veil. And then he says, uh, but on the other hand... Uh, he didn't make um, women the, the origin of all subsequent men. 
Right. So what the heck? Uh, he kind of throws up his hands at me. He admits, uh, it's, I guess it's a pretty weak argument. But then he comes up with another one that's even more ridiculous. And he says, but a woman should, she can prophesy, but she should have, but since she'll be bare without a veil, <laughs> Uh, that's like Eve being naked in the Garden of Eden, which is what attracted the evil angels, the archons, to uh, try to rape her. Well, you don't want nasty incidents like that happening in church. What? I mean, it's so preposterous. But he, he thinks he, he does have to come up with a reason. And that one just really strikes out. Uh, but, um, in a way, it's, you know, it does show that he didn't just try to lay down the law. I, I said it, you better do it. And I think that's kind of the, the background of this, uh, all things are lawful for me, though not necessarily expedient. Uh, there's a similar thing where he says, I want to be all things to all men so that by all means I might win some for the gospel. He says, among Jews, I've behaved as a Jew. That is, I've kept the, the, the Torah commandments. Though ordinarily, I, I feel I'm free from them because Christ has fulfilled the law. Uh, and, um, and that's why Gentiles uh, don't have to, to keep it. Uh, but if Jews do, well, that's their heritage. There's nothing wrong with that. At least I think that's his implication. And so I don't want to offend anybody. So if I'm preaching Christ among Jews, I am careful to not uh, violate kosher laws and be insensitive to the, the mores of Judaism. But I don't bother doing that when I'm just among uh, uh, pagans and Gentile God-fearers because I don't want to give them the wrong idea that they have to behave that way. So it depends on who I'm with as to what I do because the point is uh, I I don't want to uh, mess things up to, to, I want things to be, the real issues to be clear. Are you going to believe in Christ? Uh, and I'll, I'll speak whatever language I have to to get that across. So there's this almost Aristotelian, um, uh, complexity and flexibility to the Pauline ethic. Um, it's probably way more than you wanted to hear, Carl. Sorry. Uh, let's do one from our buddy Dr. Barton. I wonder if he's related to Hawkeye, uh, Clint Barton. Yeah, probably not. Um, once again, you've mentioned James the Just, head of the Jerusalem Church, and and of what remained of the Twelve. Uh, perhaps this is mentioned in Robert Eisenman's monstrous tome, James the Just. Well, actually, James, the brother of Jesus. But I have had no particular inclination to read it. Oh, not my cup of tea. Gee, I hate to hear that, uh, Dr. Barton. It's a great thought-provoking book. Anyway, my understanding is that James the Just is generally considered a, a minor disciple. If actually not a disciple at all. If that is the case, then how could he have become the head of the church and of the twelve? Uh, one might argue that he was the only disciple who wanted a job 
but he seems to command a lot of respect and theological authority for someone who got the job just because of his administrative acumen. Would this not argue for, one, a branch of Jesus' followers with as much authority as the disciples, but with much less publicity? Or two, uh, uh, for James and Jesus studying under the same religious teacher, and James being nearly equal to Jesus in understanding, which in turn would imply that Jesus wasn't the foundation of Christianity, but only its most public, charismatic, and martyred representative. Uh, let me deal with that first. Well, there's uh, there's um, the obvious consideration of James being the brother of Jesus, if that's what it means in Galatians, as well it might. I don't think it necessarily does. But if he were actually the blood brother of Jesus, or even a stepbrother or whatever, uh, once Jesus was gone, dead or in heaven, whatever you want to say, uh, it would be like, uh, as uh, Harnack suggested, that James had become the caliph uh, just like uh, uh, Uthman and uh, Umar and uh, Ali became the caliphs of Muhammad, the caretakers of the movement after his death. Uh, and uh, so that would make some sense. But if he were challenged, then uh, somebody naturally said, just because the guy is... Uh, a, a relative of Jesus, that, that's, what's the name for that? Uh, it's cronyism, it's, uh, I can't think of it, I'm sure you've already thought of it, who are listening, but, uh, that, that doesn't seem fair. Uh, and so, just as in Islam, the, the Shiites, that is the partisans, the partisans of Ali, saying he should have been the caliph, the very first one, uh, it's, but he's waited, and now he's the fourth. Uh, I tell you, he really deserved it. It's not just that he was the cousin and the adopted son of Muhammad. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, that's uh, He was holy in his own right. And so there was all sorts of stuff about uh, uh, how what a saint that Ali was, and a martyr as well, because he was deposed in the Civil War and so on. And, and people began to glorify him above Muhammad uh, and uh, to say that, that Ali was Allah incarnate. Uh, I, I just, you know, once you're on that trajectory, you can't stop. Well, I think it was because, I mean, who knows what Ali was really like. But uh, those uh, who w were his backers uh, were defending him against the, the idea that he had the leadership just because he happened to be a relative. Uh, and um, and I think the same thing may have happened to James, that because we read about him in Hegesippus and others as being devout and a saint and a martyr and all of that, as if they're trying to uh, rebut the notion that he only owed his position to to uh, his connection with Jesus. Uh, so that's not too hard to uh, to imagine. And Harnack said that also that it looked as if there must have been at least two Jewish Christian factions in the early church, 
one who looked to James as their authority, uh, another that looked to Peter and the Twelve. And uh, so um, uh, that that's certainly possible, that, that there was a division among Jewish disciples of Jesus. Uh, as for your idea that they were both students of uh, some teacher of righteousness, uh, that uh, that could be, though I tend to take a slightly different, well, a significantly different stance, but one kind of related to that, that James was the teacher of righteousness of Qumran, uh, as, as Eisenman argues, and that... Uh, that uh, originally they that his group didn't have anything to do with uh, the the nucleus of the Jesus movement but eventually when the two joined forces uh they they uh, posited that James was Jesus brother uh, in order to unite the two figureheads, just as in the Old Testament, you have plenty of stories saying, well, you know, uh, Abraham and Lot, uh, well, uh, they were uh, cousins, you see, and that's why the, the nations descended from Lot, uh, the, uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites, although they don't get along very well with Israel, they are related. That's why the language is pretty much the same and all that. Uh, and uh, Or if you wanted to establish trade relations, like in the Hasmonean Revolt, uh, one of the Maccabean brothers made some alliance with Sparta uh, in Greece. And to, uh, to seal the deal, they discovered that, what do you know? We have common ancestors. Well, that was a way of sealing uh, an alliance. Well, I think that happened in these uh, early messianic movements and that uh, James was uh, sort of stapled on to the Jesus family in order to assimilate a rival figurehead in a respectful way, which is also how John the Baptist became Jesus' cousin, according to Luke. Same thing. Some Christians thought uh, John the Baptist was uh, an evil spirit and vice versa. But others said, no, 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 let's let's all get together. Uh, and you don't have to abandon your veneration of uh, John the Baptist. No, he, he was great. He was uh, not as great as Jesus, but he was crucial. We needed him as the forerunner for Jesus. Yeah, so how about that? He was Elijah return. That's not bad, right? So let's let's uh, sew him into the Jesus fabric too. That's kind of what I think. Okay, uh, back to Doctor Barton. My, uh, my second, my clarification. You mentioned the classic quandary of high Christology. Could Jesus, who was wholly human and wholly divine, and he's got quotes around H O L Y, could he ever become ill? This may be addressed in some older discussion, but a key element to the answer has been lost since the 1800s with the acceptance of germ theory. We have to remember that to the mind of most people of Jesus' time, disease was caused by evil spirits. Evil spirits got into the body by paths opened through sins. The answer to the uh, question can be simple. 
if the base of suppositions of one, disease is enabled only by sin, and two, Jesus did not sin, are considered true, then Jesus never got ill. There was no way for disease spirits to enter his body. Of course, once one removes absoluteness from either of these suppositions, then the question becomes much more nuanced. Yeah, that is uh, very interesting. Uh, of course, uh, what about the uh, the stories where Jesus heals somebody by casting out a demon with the clear implication that the demon was the cause of the illness? Uh, there's a deaf, mute, epileptic demon, and when he's cast out, the, the kid is okay. Uh, the demon was the illness. Uh, well, then, you, this is, this doesn't contradict what you're saying, because you can say, well, Jesus certainly could never have been demon-possessed if he was really uh, a divine incarnation and so forth. But another possibility is like the the man who they the the paralyzed man they lowered through the roof, and Jesus said, "Son, your sins are forgiven you," and all that. Um, it, what was the connection there? Well, it implies he had been stricken with paralysis by God uh, as a punishment for some sin, and now God had forgiven him. So the uh, the sentence is. Uh, Oh man, okay. well, it canceled anyway. Uh, yeah, I, there's a better word for it. I can't think of it. Um, but uh, was Jesus ever afflicted by God uh, that with a punishment? Well, there it does become a little bit on the foggy side because um, what do we read in the in Isaiah 53 as applied to Jesus? Uh, he bore our sins which is why he was suffering. Uh, you could imagine that uh, crucifixion wasn't the only suffering he bore. I don't know if anybody suggests uh, that, but uh, if if he was sick, it could have... I mean, in later Jewish thought said that uh, if you were sick, it was a way of atoning for your own sins. Well, perhaps Jesus was a sin bearer for others, and got sick during his lifetime. Who knows? I mean, obviously, this is super speculative to the point of being ridiculous, perhaps. But you're raising interesting ideas here, as always, Dr. Barton. I'm still waiting for that book by you. Um, oh, let's see. This is from the, the Deacon of Donuts. Sounds good. For some reason, you never mention your email for questions on the podcast. It's criticus at AOL.com. Please tell folks. Yes, indeed. You can just email them to me at criticus. That is the word critic with the U.S. on the end. Criticus at AOL.com. Good thinking. Thanks. Uh, he requests my best Canada hoser accent. I'm assuming you're somewhat familiar with the so-called miracle of Our Lady of Guadalupe um, and the story of Juan Diego, eh? Uh, seeing the origins of the Christian beliefs through the mythicism lens, I'm fascinated by the parallels between Christian origins with other more modern religious myths like Our Lady of Guadalupe. 
during a, I'm sorry, doing a bit of digging, a priest wrote down the legend of Juan Diego over a hundred years after he supposedly lived. Sounds like the Gospels, eh? Uh, after Juan Diego lived, right now. Okay. Uh, the bishop who supposedly witnessed this miracle makes no mention of it, eh? So there is an argument from silence here that none of this is history. And in fact, uh, he was away in, the bishop was away in Spain during the time Diego was supposed to have visited the bishop. Hmm. So putting real historical characters into a story a la Pontius Pilate, there are bishops denying the story and even providing the paid invoice for the artist commissioned to paint the Our Lady of Guadalupe. Uh, Christ myth theory is so difficult to prove in part because so much is lost to us from that era of 2,000-ish years ago in the dusty ancient Near East, eh? But here we have a relatively modern myth still worshipped by millions today that was demonstrably a pious fraud. I'm trying to formulate this as a question, but really I just want your thoughts. Other examples of modern myths turned into history that jumped to mind? Well, oh, Deacon of Donuts, somehow this sounds like a uh, character from Wee's uh, Playhouse, but... Um, yeah, um, there are various, uh, oh, uh, let me think here. Uh, there are various stories of, uh, this isn't quite the same thing, but I guess it's worth mentioning. There are a number of instances where some cult leader died after his disciples said he would not. And uh, once he kicked the bucket, they held vigils saying that three days later he would rise again. And guess what? He didn't. Uh, and then the cops got wind <laughs> of the uh, smell of the decaying corpse and put an end to this uh, Norman Bates-type uh, devotion. Uh, that's, uh, you can well imagine somebody saying, uh, oh yeah, he did, uh, rise. You, you just, uh, are hearing the, the unbelievers lying about it. Um, in a sense, that's what's happened with these failed prophecies of the second coming with, the the Millerites, the Adventists, the Jehovah's Witnesses and others, uh, who said, uh, oh yeah, Christ is coming back on so-and-so date or before so-and-so month or year is out, whatever. Uh, and it doesn't happen. And what's the uh, reaction? Well, it uh, often, it's, and this happens quite often, uh, it's like uh, with Harold Camping, uh, who the radio uh, host, who uh, said that he had figured out the day Jesus would return. He did this twice. Uh, he tried again after the first one failed. The second one failed too. Well, uh, these his fans and a lot of people believed him. And some of them cashed in their savings and bought billboards saying, Christ is coming back on Tuesday, better repent now. What did they do? Well, apparently they just said, boy, what a bunch of saps we were. And they were chastened and said, okay, I won't make that mistake again. Uh, but uh, I, I know there was, uh, oh, I forget. 
forget. I, I don't know if it was Korean or, or Japanese, but there was an Asian group uh, in the United States that uh, predicted the second coming on a particular date, on a particular year. I, I've mentioned this before. I was driving on Route 3 into New York one day and saw a guy in this group holding up a big placard with the uh, the news that what's going to happen. Uh, well, needless to say, the day passed and, uh, a bunch of them just couldn't face up to being that wrong and kill themselves. Uh, now, these things don't add up to modern myths, but what about the witnesses? They said he's coming back in 1918 to rule the world from his throne. Uh, oh, nothing visibly happened. So they said, oh, uh, uh, well, we were right about the date. We just had it slightly wrong as to what the event was going to be like. What did happen was that Jesus assumed his, uh, his uh, seat of authority in heaven, and he's ruling the earth from there. Uh, well, I guess they didn't stick with that because, well, they kept making other uh, schedule adjustments when he would come back to the earth. But you see what, the, and, and finally they gave up and they said, okay, it's, it's obvious we're barking up the wrong tree here. It, it will happen. We think it'll be soon, but we, we've learned our lesson. We're not making uh, appointments anymore. Uh, but uh, what had they done? They had added to the myth by saying that Jesus' session in heaven uh, as the ruler had occurred, uh, an important event in salvation history had occurred. Uh, and uh, so they've added to the myth. Um, oh, the uh, the Adventists, uh, the, or originally the Millerites, believed that Christ was coming back, I think it was in 1848, and some date in October, uh, date passed, nothing uh, then they, somebody came up with a revised date. Nothing happened then either. Or did it? They said, well, uh, again, we had the right date. We misunderstood what was going to happen. Jesus didn't return to the earth in judgment, Armageddon, etc. But he, uh, like in the epistle of the Hebrews, he uh, inaugurated a judgment by going into the heavenly tabernacle. And I guess, uh, they're making up a list of who's been naughty and nice, something like that. Uh, and, and they added something about the scapegoat ritual in Leviticus and that somehow Satan had borne the sins of humanity. Well, they were elaborating the, the Christian myth, uh, because of a failed, uh, prophecy. Uh, let's see. Uh, the, uh, actual appearances. Well, there's people like, uh, Sun Myung Moon and David Koresh, who claim to be the, the second coming of Jesus or the one to fulfill the mission of Jesus. And it sounded like they were talking apocalypse, right? That this would be the big, uh, bang up. Well, it didn't, and they died. Uh, Koresh, of course, killed in that fiasco in, in uh, 
Waco, uh, and Reverend Moon just, you know, dying from natural causes. Uh, but they had to suddenly revise the, they had to move to realized eschatology and so on. That's uh, a, a, a documented event that led to a, a new bit of theology, which is to say a new piece of mythology. I'm sure there are other ones that that are more like the uh, Our Lady of uh, Guadalupe, but what about the uh, the spinning of the sun at uh, uh, Fatima? That might be another one where some people said, oh yeah, we saw the sun spinning around, and other people who were there at the same time said, gee, I didn't see that. And so it enters the books of Catholic belief, just like the Guadalupe thing did, that uh, depending on what club you're in, you're going to believe this uh, big thing happened. But I know there's other ones. If I think of them, maybe I'll mention them on the next episode. Or if you, if anybody can think of any other ones, let me know. I'm just sure there are. Uh, boy, it's got it on the tip of my brain. Oh, boy. Well, okay, forget it. You're not going to do it today, Price. But you're right. That really does uh, show you the kind of thing you suspect would be uh, debunkable if we had enough data. And finally, um, and this empties the rain barrel, by the way. I'm going to need some more stuff quick. This is from Alex. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, 5. In fact, let's, uh, I can't seem to get out of uh, 1 Corinthians. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to our food and drink? Do we not have the right to be accompanied by a wife as the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Uh, actually, literally what it says, do, do we not have the right to be accompanied by a sister as wife? Uh, what does that mean? Um, in, in one translation in which Alex is, is reading, it says a believing wife. Well, you know, that's a natural paraphrase of it. Uh, then he's, Alex says, were other early apostles in the habit of taking unbelieving wives leading to the practice being frowned upon? Well, it kind of would sound that way, but I, and you may be right, as weird as that sounds. Uh, you, you can see if somebody would have been quick to quote, uh, Amos's, and how can two walk together if, if, uh, they're not agreed? I mean, that's still used uh, today to discourage interfaith marriages. Well, there are problems that come up in Oh, uh, chapter seven, I believe, of First Corinthians, about whether if you, if one partner was a Christian and the other was not, and they had uh, a child, would the child be considered uh, legitimate? This came up with uh, Jewish and Gentile marriages too in rabbinic ethics, and uh, Paul says, well. As long as one of you is sanctified, uh, then the baby is too. So don't worry, you're, you're not having the baby antichrist or something. Uh, as long as one of you is, all right, you know, the baby's okay. Maybe uh, your spouse will become a Christian too, but don't worry. 
course, that kind of raises the question of uh, would the believer be free to catechize the child? Uh, that, that could be a problem, but uh, I guess they can wind up celebrating Christmas or something. I don't know. But reading this made me think of something I hadn't before, thanks to Alex. In the uh, second and third century uh, church, there was a controversy over whether apostles or traveling prophets or evangelists or whatever uh, could travel with a woman they were not married to uh, as long as they had been pledged to celibacy. And there was a trend among Christians where the the husband and the wife were legally married and were both Christians, but had uh, but didn't have kids because they were pledged to celibacy because they thought it was that sex was the original sin. Uh, this was big among the encratites of various kinds. Right? The apocryphal acts have the apostles preaching this. You got to give up sex if you hope to be saved, because uh, sex, like Saint Augustine said, was the original sin, etc., etc. Uh, well, there were two pseudo-Clementine epistles about virginity that, uh, I believe, as I remember, uh, defend this practice. I, I don't, in our day, the closest thing would be when uh, a Catholic priest has a Catholic lady who is the housekeeper, and they both live in the same house, but there's no hanky-panky going on, at least ideally. Uh, I, I imagine that's what was was going on, but uh, there was controversy because I think Tertullian, for instance, thought that uh, oh no no it may be that no no hanky panky is uh, in in the works, but uh, what are unbelievers going to think? I mean, it's the same idea of appearances that Paul raises about taking money from his congregations. He said, I have every, every right to do that, but I don't do it because I know what people are going to think. This, this guy is just a swindler. Um, as you know, I, you kind of wonder about that when you see a man of God at the wheel of his Cadillac and all that. Uh, and so Paul said, better not to give people the wrong idea. And uh, so Tertullian thought, yeah, this you, you're just bringing your preaching into discredit if you do that. But others said, no, it, it's all right. I wonder if something is like that is going on. I guess it depends on what it means when you say that that uh, he has the right to do as the the brethren of the Lord and uh, the other apostles do to travel with a sister as wife. Uh, the, the wording is kind of confusing any way you cut it, but I, I have to wonder if possibly that's what he's he's referring to and that it is controversial already because that arrangement was discussed in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, this weird verse that has spawned all kinds of interpretations, it says, uh, uh, if, uh, well, I, yeah, I should read it, trust my fading memory here. It's, again, it's First Corinthians. I shouldn't have closed the Bible here. Oh, let's see. 
Okay. Uh, verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, that it is well for them to remain single, as I do. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better uh, to marry than to burn, or as the RSV has it, to be aflame with passion. Uh, let me skip some of this. Okay, yeah. Okay, here we go. And verse 32 of chapter 7. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly affairs, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried woman or virgin, it says girl here, but literally virgin, uh, is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. Uh, but the married woman uh, uh, is anxious about worldly affairs, how to please her husband. Uh, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his, what, literally Parthenos, his virgin, uh, if his passions are strong, or if she's getting too old to bear children, believe it or not, that's a equally valid translation of an ambiguous original, uh, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his virgin, he will do well. So that he who marries his virgin does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do better. Now, what is going on there? Well, uh, it's it's uh, very uh, uh, oh, it's a very tough nut to crack. My professor David Scholler, R.I.P., uh, once said. If there is, if you're looking up in commentaries what a particular verse might mean, and there are loads of different interpretations, what that means is that the text is unavoidably clear. What? Don't you mean the opposite? No, it's like it's clear, but uh, uncomfortable. And so people are trying to find anything else it might mean. Well, what does it probably mean? Uh, well, uh, let's see. There is one translation that I know of. There might be others where they, uh, I think they've got it right. Uh, and let me read this out of the New English Bible, New Testament. I always like that one a lot, too. Uh, okay, here we go. Uh, this is uh, verse 32 and the NEB. 
I want you to be free from anxious care. The unmarried man cares for the Lord's business. His aim is to please the Lord, but the married man cares for worldly things. His aim is to please his wife, and he has a divided mind. The unmarried or celibate woman cares for the Lord's business. Her aim is to be dedicated to him in body as in spirit. But the married woman cares for worldly things. Her aim is to please her husband. In saying this, I have no wish to keep you on a tight rein. I'm thinking simply of your own good, of what is seemly, and of your freedom to wait upon the Lord without distraction. But if a man has a partner in celibacy and feels that he is not behaving proper, properly toward her, if, that is, his instincts are too strong for him, or she's getting past childbearing age, um, and something must be done, he may do as he pleases. There's nothing wrong in it. Let them marry. But if a man is steadfast in his purpose, can, um, uh, being under no compulsion and has complete control of his own choice, and if he has decided in his own mind to preserve his partner in her virginity, uh, he will do well. Thus, he who marries his partner does well, and he who does not will do better. Well, okay, that uh, the New English Bible translators assume that this this practice uh, was uh, it was uh, or as early as First Corinthians, and that that's what you're talking about. Because otherwise, it it's really weird when it says a man is behaving unseemly toward his virgin. It means his virgin daughter, uh, and that uh, he he should let. Uh, her and her possible boyfriend get married. That's adding somebody to the equation there. Uh, and, uh, it, uh, it, it doesn't seem to make as much sense. In fact, I think it's, uh, let the, oh boy, I'm, I'm forgetting some of this. Uh, but, uh, there's also the idea that, uh, virgin, his, his virgin, uh, might mean a virgin he is engaged to, he says uh, that really would work only in later Byzantine Greek, uh, where it's uh, it's actually kind of off color. Uh, the only one that is free from problems, other than it being strange to modern ears, is that they're talking about this uh, this celibate partnership. Uh, and uh, that that's like Paul and Thecla in the Acts of Paul. Uh, and I'm convinced that is the point of it. And it's conceivable that a sister as wife uh, means that uh, possibly you're married but celibate. Uh, and in in 1 Corinthians 9 that I was just reading, when he says let them marry, of course he means to actually consummate the marriage sexually. But uh, if if the phrase sister as wife uh, means um, partner in celibate marriage, uh, that would solve the, the linguistic problems and make more sense in the context. So uh, 
I had not thought to associate uh, this passage with that, but I think perhaps uh, that is the best interpretation. Uh, and I appreciate your bringing it to my attention, Alex. That's great. Well, that's it for the rain barrel. Of course, it's not it for the Bible geek. I uh, am eager to uh, answer more questions, and uh, trust you will send them to me. And uh, I'll see you next time, whenever that is, probably pretty soon, uh, for another exciting episode of The Bible Geek. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.